Sean, and I got the joy and privilege of preaching to you. Um, and before I get started, I'd love to dismiss the little kiddos. If you're in nursery or children ages four to six going to children's church, you can head on back, follow little Wilson. Z waves goodbye to everybody. Z always does. We love that little guy. Um, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of John. So if you could turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 7. We'll be continuing from where we left off last week, starting in John chapter 7, verses 25. We'll be going to verse 36. So I will read our scripture for us this morning, and then I'll pray, and then we will jump in. Starting in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, who else can we go to for you have the words of eternal life? This morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work through my words, that your, whole, that your holy word would pierce us because it is alive and active. Would it pierce through our blindness, through our deafness, through our hardness of heart? Would it work within us and let us see you more clearly, Lord? In your name we pray, amen. amen. Have you ever played the game Guess Who? Recently, uh, Right around Christmas time, my wife and I went to Birmingham to visit my brother Josh, who lives in Birmingham. So I got to see him and his family. And so when you're, you know, enjoying holidays, often you get opportunities to play board games with the family. And so I woke up one morning and my nephew was sitting there and he had Guess Who sitting on the table and he asked me if I would play with him. And if you've ever played Guess Who, or maybe you haven't, how Guess Who works is each person chooses someone at random and there's a little board with a bunch of faces and names on it. And so the goal of the game is to each take a turn and to make a guess that's a yes or no question that eliminates part of the people on the board, and eventually you'll have one person left remaining. And you'll be like, is your person Bob? And then they'll be like, no, it is, so it's over. But the goal is to try and get there before they do. So you might ask, like, is your person um, a man, or is your person a woman? And you, you eliminate half of them if they say no, and then you say, does your person have black hair? 
Is your person wearing a hat? Is your person wearing glasses? And eventually it gets down to one. And if you want to ruin the game forever and not be fun at all, you can watch a YouTube video by Mark Rober where he shows you how you can win 96% of the time. <laughs> Which I did not do because I'm not an evil uncle and I don't do that to my nephews. But as I studied this text this week, I couldn't think of anything else but the game of Guess Who? Because we see question after question after question from the people. We see them ask questions of Jesus and who he is in verses 25 and 26. We see it in verse 31. We see it again in verses 35 and 36. It's almost like the people are playing this big game of guess who, and before them are all the different options of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus really? In each question, it seems like they're narrowing it down. Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he an authority they must listen to? What is his purpose? And doesn't that sound familiar? Aren't those same questions asked today in our culture? You look from film to TV shows to books, everyone's asking the same question. Who in the world is this man that lived over 2,000 years ago? Is he the Christ? Who is Jesus? Is he just a good moral teacher? Was he a madman who thought he was God? Was he the Messiah? And we have these, these conversations amongst our friends and our coworkers over dinner at a coffee shop with a friend, or maybe on a drive home while you're talking to your teenager from school. We see these questions all over the place, and if we're honest, those questions aren't just out in our culture, they're within each and every one of us. Every one of us must answer the question, who is Jesus to us? Is he our Savior? And we must avoid the terrifying error that the people in our text fell for. Because, you know, they knew a lot of Jesus, but they did not know Jesus. They were familiar with Jesus, but they were not in relationship with him. And so we're going to follow along this morning with their questions. And we're going to look at the two big questions, kind of the themes of their questions this morning. First, where is Jesus from? And second, where is Jesus going? Where is he from? Where is he going? And as we look at both of these questions, my hope is that as we walk through them, we'll begin to see all of the different misconceptions, all of the different false understandings of who Jesus is, that they would fall down and that all that would be right before us is the real picture of Jesus, our Messiah. So first, let us explore the first question. Where is Jesus from? So remember, where are we at this point in John's Gospel? Where are we in chapter 7? Right now, there's a big festival going on, if you remember, and Joel talked about last week how Jesus' brothers said, hey, you need to go there. You need to go to this festival. Your platform is about to explode if you go to this festival. And Jesus goes, but he goes covertly, because he doesn't care about the platform, but he cares about his people. And so here he is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, which, if you did not know, is a festival that celebrated God's deliverance of the people from Egypt and, and his deliverance of them while they were in the wilderness. And one commentator said that to us today, it would look a lot like the Jerusalem Camping and Recreational Vehicle Convention. Because if you were walking around Jerusalem, what you would see were all these tents just pitched up everywhere. Everywhere around you, you'd see these tents, and they would have these thin walls so that the people who were sleeping outside would be able to look through and see the stars at night and be reminded of how God had delivered his people in the wilderness. And so this is the scene over all of Jerusalem. Jesus has come covertly, and here he is walking and teaching 
And he's basically got this big neon sign above him. You know, as all these people are thinking about Moses and his deliverance, what is Jesus saying by teaching and proclaiming? He's saying, the greater Moses is here. He's right here in front of you. And so here he is teaching the people. But what do the people see? Look with me at verse 25. Notice that they have a faulty view of Jesus' origin. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? How crazy is that? That in the public square, it was known amongst the crowds of people that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were plotting to kill Jesus. That's not a very secret plot if the crowds are all discussing this. But yet, here Jesus is, and he's standing openly and boldly. You can see he's proclaiming out in the open in front of everyone. And so the people are like, well, what is going on here? Either Jesus is a crazy person with a death wish, or maybe the Pharisees actually do believe that he is the Messiah. Maybe they believe that he is the Christ after all. But if that was the case, that would lead to a couple issues. Because if you look, if you look at John 7, you will see that there's two different views of the origins of Jesus. The first view, if you look at verse 27, we'll see. Look at me at verse 7. It says, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So this view taught that no one would know where Jesus was from. That he would just appear onto the scene, and so if anybody told you, hey, we know where the Messiah is, we know where he's from, that they were a fraud. And then we actually see a second view. If you go again in in chapter 7, go all the way down to verses 41 to 42. There's another view, which said, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So the this, this second view knew their Old Testament really well. They knew Micah 5 too, which prophesies that though Bethlehem was small, from you shall come forth one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So one view taught that no one would know where he comes from, Another view taught, well, he's only going to come from Bethlehem. But the problem is, both of them missed Jesus, did they not? Because they said, hey, Jesus came from Galilee. He's not from Bethlehem. But where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. They had actually had it correct. But here he is standing right before him, and they've completely missed who Jesus was. They completely missed Jesus' origin. But Jesus catches them in their faulty view. Look at verse 28. This is one of those verses where I wish that we could be there to watch what Jesus is saying because we just have the words here, but we don't catch Jesus' tone. We don't catch Jesus' facial expression. But listen to what he says. He says, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. It's almost when you read that, you can't tell if he's being sarcastic You can't tell if he's got a smile on his face. Maybe he's got a palm on his forehead, and he's like, oh, you know me, do you? You know where I come from. It's almost like he's kind of playing a joke at their expense. He's almost being sarcastic, or he's being just disappointed. You you can't really tell his tone, but it's hard not to think that he's being ironic here. Oh, you know me. You know where I come from, do you? For in one sense, they knew of where Jesus has come from, and in another sense, they don't know at all where he has come from. Because he is very blunt with them. He gives them a big blinking neon sign. Because who does he say he is from? He is from God. He says, I am from God. I have been sent by God. And worse yet, 
you don't know God. That's a very intense statement. What a terrifying statement to hear from Jesus. And especially to these people who, what do they think? They think they are doing God's will. They think they are being in the right here. They think they are keeping an ear to the ground and awaiting the signs of the coming of the Messiah. They knew of God, but they did not know Him personally. And later in John 8, Jesus will say the same thing just as clearly. Look at John 8 and go to verses 19 to 20. They said to Him, therefore, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And again in verse 55, But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His words. That's intense words from Jesus, but He's being honest with them. He's trying to be clear that they don't know Him, and they do not know the Father. He's trying to wake them up. And how do they respond? What are the two responses of the crowds? The first response we see is that they have had enough. All right, this guy is blaspheming out in the open. He's claiming to be from God. This is the end. We need to arrest this guy. He must be silenced. But there is another response. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The second group amazingly believed And they believed because of the signs that Jesus has done, but it was sufficient that they were believing in Jesus, that He was the Christ. Amazingly, they believe that He is the Son of God and their feeble faith is enough. And personally, one of the eeriest feelings that I've ever experienced is if you're ever alone at night in the woods. And I go on these hunting trips with my brother, and so a couple years ago we went to the Missouri National Forest, and there I was in a deer stand out at night, and the sun is setting, and there's just that unsettling feeling as the sun has gone down, and you begin to hear like the forest like, come alive around you, and you can't see anything. It's such a creepy feeling. <laughs> you just know that you do not belong there. But amazingly, this technology has come a long way, especially for hunters. So you can actually download the map of the area that you're around on HuntStand or on Google Maps, and so even if you have no cell phone reception and no Wi-Fi signal, you can actually see your little pin on the map. And it'll show you what arrow you're pointing, and you can actually lead yourself out to your campsite. So you can drop a pin on your campsite. You can actually drop a pin on the deer that you shot, which is what I did. (laughs) I dropped a pin and went and got my brother, and we came back, and we carried it out in the night, which is amazing. But now imagine for a second if the pin I had dropped on my campsite was wrong. That would have been terrible, because I had been in these woods for, you know, like four hours in the daylight at this point. I didn't know these woods. I didn't grow up in these woods. And if you know anything about the woods, it's one thing to see some landmarks in the light, but when it is completely dark and you're walking through, you'll be like, I don't know if that's the tree I saw back there. I don't know where I am at all. You just get lost so easily. Without a right understanding of where I was starting from, I would have never reached my goal. I would have never reached the campsite. I would have been aimless. I would have been wandering around in the dark and just becoming more and more lost. And I think that illustrates exactly where the people are today in our text. They had a wrong view of Jesus' origin. They didn't really know who he was or where he was truly from. They may have known some basic facts about him, 
but they did not know him. They were like people walking around in the woods at night without a map. And the worst part about all of this is that they thought they were heading in the right direction. Because what is the worst? What is worse than someone lost alone in the woods at night? Someone who is lost and doesn't think they are lost. Because what are they doing? Confidently marching forward the wrong direction, right? They're like, oh, it's just around this bend. It'll be, you know, past that tree. I, I think I remember that tree. It's got to be right over there. The lost, confident person is the person that is the most lost. Because someone who knows they are lost might do something about it. Maybe they call out and they scream out, help. Or maybe they begin to backtrack to where they started and they're like, all right, I'm going to stay here and wait for someone to come and get me. But the lost person is confidently getting more and more lost. Now, what in the world does that have to do with us today? What are you talking about, Sean? Well, the people knew of Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. Does that sound at all like our Bible Belt culture a little bit? Does that sound a little familiar? Could that be true of some people that we really love and care about? Could that be true of you? Of course I know Jesus, we say. I went to Awana. I got all the stickers. You know, my parents dropped me off at every VBS in all of Pensacola. I know Jesus, okay? Whenever we did a sword drill where you had to go find the Bible passage, I was always the first one there. I was the best. They knew of Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. How would Jesus respond to our southern Bible Belt culture? What would he say? Would he say what he said to these crowds today? Would he say that though you claim to know me and where I am from, in truth you do not know me or my father? One author who wrote a lot about the South was an author named Flannery O'Connor. If you ever read some of her short stories, often she would have these twist, kind of shocking endings, hoping to kind of wake up her readers, often written in the context of the South, exposing hypocrisies and inconsistencies. And she wrote this of the South. While the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. Oof. Another author responded to this quote in his book, The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity for the Gospel. And in, his, in that book, uh, the author Dean said this, Sadly, many people in the Bible Belt are haunted by the idea of Christ. While not understanding his love for them, believing the gospel would allow them to understand that it is the true kindness of God that can actually lead them to repentance. With an awareness of God and our sins, but not the gospel, one is only left with country music theology, hoping God would let us into heaven after we've had some fun on earth. It is ironic that a faith practiced apart from repentance is the, that actually won't experience freedom. It is, act, it is always looking over its shoulder when instead it could be surrendered to the God who pursues and saves. Hmm. That rings true. It is ironic that a faith practiced apart from repentance is one that won't actually experience freedom. We are haunted by Christ instead of realizing that Christ is pursuing us. Knowing of Jesus instead of knowing Him personally. But here's what I want you to hear. The Bible Belt is a mission field filled with a harvest that is plentiful. Paul tells us that the Gospel is the power for salvation. Do we believe that about the Bible Belt? Do we believe that about our culture? Is it enough for those tired of faking it 
Can we point them, those are so exhausted just having to fake it all the time, point them to the Jesus who is rest for their weary souls. Amen? That is what we can do. Let us tell them about the real Jesus. Let us tell them about how he has transformed our lives. The freedom that Joel talks about, not having to fake it anymore, but being honest about confessing our sins openly because Jesus is there pursuing us. Not so that we can become a good moral person, but so that we can become a new person. That is the real Jesus. So let us return to our text. The people are not, asking, not only asking about where Jesus was from, but they're asking about where Jesus was going. Not only did they misunderstand Jesus' origin, but they misunderstood his mission. Look with me in verses 32 and 33. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. This is kind of a contrast here, right? We, all of a sudden we see the Pharisees on the scene, and they're muttering to themselves. They're beginning to hear the crowd, and some of those they're beginning to believe. And they're like, all right, this is enough. We've got to put a stop to this. And in verse 33, Jesus tells the people, I'm going to be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to the Father. In that one sentence, Jesus kind of shows how little he is worried about the Pharisees, right? Here they are plotting to kill him out in the open, and he's like, I'm going to be with you a little while longer, then I am going to be with the Father. What is he saying in that one sentence? He is saying that God is in control, not his enemies. That Jesus will be put to death when, the God, when God the Father has intended, not when the Pharisees have intended. It's not their plan at work at all. In that one sentence, he completely puts all the fear away from their plots. But yet, in verse 34, we read one of the most terrifying things that Jesus can say. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That is a hard message from Jesus. That they will seek him, and they will not be able to find him. That those that are seeking to kill Jesus will be killing themselves by killing them. They will be removing their opportunity for relationship with Jesus. They will be cutting themselves off from God by cutting him. The people understand this, and they understand that this is a serious claim of Jesus. Look at their final questions. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot go. You can kind of see that they understand that he must be saying something serious, but they don't really understand what he is saying. Now, when he talks about the dispersion, what he's talking about here are the exiled Jews. If you remember the exile and the persecution that went through, the Jewish people would be living all around the surrounding region in the Roman Empire. So they kind of think to themselves, well, maybe he's talking about that Jesus will go out from here and he'll go to the Jews throughout the Roman Empire and maybe he'll teach the Greeks. You know, they're completely missing Jesus' warning here. But you can kind of sense that there's, a, there's, an, there's an element where they understand that it is serious and they need to heed it. One commentator said, the speakers are still haunted by Jesus' words. They have missed where Jesus is going and they have missed his purpose and his mission. You know, it is a really difficult thing to be in a relationship with someone and completely miss their purpose and mission. To have that serious level of miscommunication. You know, maybe hypothetically, 
your wife might tell you like three times about an event that's coming up this week, and then that night comes, and you come home from work, and you're like, oh, I can breathe. And she's like, what are you doing? We need to get ready. And then you say, ready for what? Like hypothetically, right? That's never happened to anyone. But sorry, Leanne, I might have done that several times. But all of those reminders, that level of communication is very difficult on relationship, is it not? And that's just for an event. How can you be in relationship with someone and completely miss their purpose and their mission in life? How can you be close to someone and completely miss where they are going? That is to miss them. And the people here are missing Jesus. Even though he is standing right before them, they are missing him. And don't miss this. There's great irony in their words here because what was Jesus' mission? Would he go to the dispersion? Would he go and teach the Greeks? In a way, he did, did he not? How did Jesus reach all those people? Through his church, right? Where does the gospel go? It goes to Judea, it goes to Jerusalem, and it goes to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has sent all of us out on his mission to make disciples of all nations, disciples of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, And we read about Jesus' mission very clearly in Philippians 2. It reads this, "...who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. And Jesus himself stated his mission again in Luke 4. Remember when he quoted the prophet Isaiah from the scroll and he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was Jesus' mission. That is who our Savior is and that is what He is about. He is freeing us, the oppressed, the blind, from sin, from oppression, from death, We who were poor, who were captive to sin, who were blind and who were being oppressed by sin, and He has come and He has freed us from sin's reign. He has redeemed us. He has restored us. And here is the amazing truth, that wherever you are today, you can still come to Him. Because it is not about the size of our faith. It is about who our faith is placed in. It's not about having a master's degree in theology. Right? Think about the gospel, uh, or think about the Apostle Thomas. What is he known as? Doubting Thomas. And what, is, what happens when he encounters Jesus? What does Jesus do? He goes up to him, he embraces him, and he takes his skepticism and he puts them directly in his wounds. One author said of that, he says that Jesus turned doubting Thomas into believing Thomas, trusting Thomas and knowing Thomas. And that is good news for us, because wherever we are today, we can bring our fickle and feeble faith to Him. We can bring whatever we have to Him, like the thief on the cross. 
They just shouted out to Jesus, and Jesus restored and renewed him. And I want to close by reading the promise of Jesus' words in verse 37 that we're going to hear more about next week, but it's too good not to read to you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It is as simple as that for us. If you are thirsty, come to Jesus and he will satisfy you. Let us pray. Jesus, when we see the real you, it is too baffling to understand, to understand your grace and your mercy and your love for us, that even while we were still sinners, you died for us, and that you redeem and you restore us. Enable us to go out to our culture and to preach this message to them who need it so desperately. In your name we pray, amen.